We find our text this morning from the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 98. Psalm 98. In Psalm 98, we read God's word. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, and let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the world and the people's with equity. Brothers, sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we reflect on the words of Psalm 98, we notice that the psalmist here calls all of mankind, together with all of creation, to praise the name of the Lord God. And the praise that goes out to God in the psalm is one that grows in ever wider circles. First, God's own people praise the Lord for his great and mighty deeds of salvation. And then the people of the whole world raise their voices to praise God as the one who rules over all the nations of the earth. And then finally, all of creation lifts its voice to praise the Lord who is coming in judgment. And so the psalm then conveys the image of this mighty sound of praise that is growing ever louder and louder and greater until finally it reaches its climax in that thundering praise of God when he comes to this world to judge the living and the dead. And so this morning... I may proclaim to you God's word under this theme. Praise the Lord, for the Savior reigns. Our theme, praise the Lord, the Savior reigns. We'll look at three things. We see, first of all, there's praise for the Lord, that all the nations are called then to praise the Lord, for he is victorious. Find that in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, All the peoples of the earth are called to praise the Lord, for he is the one who reigns over the earth. And in third place, all creation is called to praise the Lord, for he comes to judge. In the verses 1 through 3, God's people are called to sing praise or to sing to the Lord. Notice Lord here in all capital letters means, translates the, the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. And so all the peoples are called then to to sing to Yahweh a new song. Well, a new song is something that you'll find about nine times in the Old and the New Testament. 
And a new song is, is sung when God's people experience a, a new act of salvation from the Lord their God. And so when God comes and when He saves His people, the result of God's saving act is that God's people, that they sing a new song in order that they might praise the Lord God for His wonderful deliverance. And so every time the Lord God comes to save His people Israel, His people would lift up their voice to praise Him for His mighty deeds. And so in the first, first three verses of this psalm, the psalmist celebrates God's saving deeds for the people of Israel. Verse 1 says that Yahweh has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him, that is, for the people of Israel. Well, these marvelous things are the thing, is a reference to the fact that God has, has saved Israel with His right hand, with His holy arm. Well, the right hand, the holy arm, are expressions used in Scripture to express God's warring activity on behalf of His people expresses the thought that the Lord God is the one who goes out and who fights Israel's battles. He is the God who gives Israel their victory over their enemies. And that means that Israel cannot make any claim on, on what they have done. They cannot take any credit for the victories that they have won because it's the Lord their God who has gone into battle for them and who has destroyed their enemies before them. And so that is indeed a theme that is found throughout the history of God's people. It's not they who gain the victory, it's God who gives them the victory. Because He is the one who goes into battle for them. And so that raises the question, so, so why did the Lord God go into battle for Israel? Why did He come to their rescue so often in order that He might save them from their enemies? Well, verse 3 says this. It says that God remembered His love and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. That means that, that God fights for His people because He loves them. And in His love for them, He is faithful so that He will never ever abandon them to their enemies. And this word love, found in the text, is sometimes also translated as loving kindness, it's a word that often has the idea of God's covenant love. In other words, God has revealed His love to His people. How? By coming to them and by entering into a covenant with them. And this is a covenant that God made first with, with Abraham. And in which He promised Abraham that He would raise up from Abraham a great people who would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as the stars in the sky. And God says, and they will be my people. And so the psalmist then also says here that the Lord God never forgot that promise that he had made to their forefather Abraham. And therefore the Lord God is a God who will never either forget or abandon his love for his people. God is faithful to His promise so that when He sees His people in danger, when He sees them in despair because of the oppression of their enemies, then He comes to them with His right hand, with His holy arm, in order that He might fight for them and that He might destroy the enemy. 
And so as we look at this psalm, many attempts have been made by commentators to try to determine, so what was the historical context? What was the historical situation in which this song was written by the psalmist? And it's interesting that almost every attempt made by commentators has failed to try to determine the historical background because it appears that the author has simply removed anything in the psalm that might somehow connect it to some particular battle or to some particular deliverance that God had given to the people of Israel. Of course, when we realize that the Holy Scriptures is inspired by the Holy Spirit, we also realize that the Spirit is the one who leads things. Therefore, this doesn't happen by chance. There must also be a reason why the psalm does not have any connection to any particular historical situation. The reason appears to be that this song can be, and in this way, by writing it in this way without attachment to any historical situation, this is a song that can be sung by God's people in every situation in which they experience God's saving act in their life. And so it's a song that could be sung by God's people throughout their history in many different situations. It's a song that, that Israel could already sing, for example, when, when they were delivered by God out of slavery when they were in Egypt. You know that in, in Egypt, God came to His people. And He saved them with His, you can say, His right hand and His own holy arm. Remember how in Egypt, the people of Israel did not lift a finger in order to work out their own deliverance. They were incapable of that. They're on the verge of extinction and with no hope in the future. And the Lord God is the God who came to them, and He did all the work. He fought for them. He is the one who delivered them from the hand of that mighty Pharaoh. And again, when you go many centuries later, and you go to the time of Israel's exile into Babylon. And then after some 70 years, God promised He would deliver them, and indeed it was the Lord God who came and who delivered Israel and restored them again to their own land. Not because Israel somehow rose up and were able to, to, to deliver themselves, but because God came and He fought for them and He looked out for them. And so it is throughout Israel's history, whether it be in the time of, of the judges when God would raise up many judges, or in the time of the kings such as Saul and then after him King David and his sons. Time and again when, when the people came and when the people were oppressed by their enemies, God in His love and His faithfulness delivered them from the hands of their enemy. And so when we consider that, that this song, that is a song that could be sung in all those different situations where God came and He delivered His people, that means, beloved, that as a New Testament church, we too can sing the words of this song. That means that the same words of praise that our brothers and our sisters in Israel sang long ago are the same words that we today, today as New Testament believers can now shout out to the Lord our God today. You know, one of the, the things that is lost today in so many churches in North America is the singing of the Psalms. And there are many believers today who will also argue that the Old Testament Psalms are no longer relevant for the church in the New Testament time. 
And the reason for this way of thinking is that so many believers today no longer see the Psalms as words that are fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But take, for example, the letter to the Hebrews, and you look at the first chapter, and it's not a very long chapter, but in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer takes quotations from the Psalms, and he takes five, different, five quotations from five different Psalms. He takes quotations from Psalm 2, 104, 45, 102, and 110. And why does he quote all these, all these Psalms? Because he sees in these Psalms also references already to the coming of the Savior who is Jesus Christ. And so the New Testament author shows then already how the Psalms spoke about the Lord Jesus as the Savior of, of Israel. And so when we turn to Psalm 98, Psalm 98 calls the believers here to sing a new song to the Lord. That means, beloved, it also calls us as New Testament believers to sing a new song to the Lord our God. And just as when the Israelites believers sang his, this, this praise to the Lord God in their time, and they would think then about how God had delivered them in their own life and had delivered them in their own unique situation. So today we sing about God's deliverance, beloved, in our own life. For from our New Testament perspective, we praise the Lord God for what? We praise Him for His great deliverance in our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise Him because we acknowledge that the Lord Jesus has done marvelous things, that by His right hand and by His holy arm, holy arm He has worked salvation for us. And therefore, when you turn to Revelation chapter 5, which we read together, remember there John sees the Lamb. Lamb entering into heaven. And it's the Lamb who takes the scroll that is resting there on God's hand. And then what do you read? What's the response? You read that everyone there in heaven, they fell down in reverence and they sang what? They sang a new song. And in this new song, what they did is they praised the Lamb. Why? Because He is the great victor who has won the great battle. There they praise Him because He is the one who was slain and who with His blood has now purchased men for God from every tribe and language and nation. Here the Lord Jesus is the one who went into battle for us. And going in battle, He was slain. He died on the cross. But he was not defeated, for, he, for there on the cross he paid for all of our sins. And then he also he rose up from the dead. He overcame sin, he over, and he destroyed death. And so he overcame sin and the devil and the whole world for us. And therefore, with this song, beloved, we may indeed, we may praise the Lord Jesus for the one who has worked out our salvation. Why did he do that for us? Why did he do that for you? Why did he do that for me? Well, not because we're worthy. Not because we're more deserving than anybody else in the world. But, because it, but beloved, because of his loving kindness and because of his faithfulness. 
For even though, as Paul says, we were yet enemies of God, yet in His great love and His great mercy, He came. And He fought that great battle for our life. And that also is what gives us the reason, as the people of Israel had reason, to lift up their voice, to praise the Lord our God. For we acknowledge, beloved, that He has come and He has also saved us with His mighty arm. But the psalmist does not only call God's people, that is, those who are believers, to praise God for their salvation. Notice that he also calls all, on all of mankind to praise the Lord God Almighty. Notice in verse 4 what he says. He says, shout for joy to the Lord. Shout for joy to Yahweh, the God of Israel, all the earth. And so you notice in verse 4 that there is a shift here from, from speaking about what God has done for his people to now calling all the earth, that is all people, to come and to shout praise to God. That means everyone in the world is to burst forth into jubilant song with music. They are to make music to the Lord with the harp and the sound of singing and with the trumpet and with the blast of the ram's horn. Well, that ram's horn is, wasn't generally used for, for musical purposes. It was more used as a, a means of a, making an announcement of somebody's coming. And so remember, it was the ram's horn by which God announced His coming to His people Israel there at Mount Sinai. And so you notice, and all the peoples of the earth, they are called to shout for joy before the Lord, before Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is the King. That means, beloved, that, that Yahweh is not just the King of Israel. Remember that in those days, the people often thought that their gods were just gods over their, over their nationality. They weren't universal gods. They were only gods over small parts of the world over certain nations. But the psalmist makes clear, he says, no, God of Israel, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is not just the God of this little people, Israel. No, He is the King of the whole earth. And so the picture that, that we have here is, is that the Lord God is the God who goes out to fight for His people. And having fought for His people, He now returns again in victory. You know that when kings went out to fight the enemy and they, they won uh, and they defeated their enemy, that they would return, and they would return, of course, in victory. And when they came back with a victory march, they would be greeted by the people with music and with singing. You have that well-known example. I'm sure the children, you remember that example also being told in Bible, in your Bible stories by your parents or by your teacher, remember when, when Saul would return from fighting the Philistines after he had defeated them, and then the people would greet them with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with tambourines and lutes, and they would sing, yes, Saul, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And so they sang the victory song. Of course, we know that, that David kind of got in trouble uh, because of that, because Saul was jealous of him. But nevertheless, it shows us that when they came back in victory, the people would then sing and they would shout for joy because of the victory the king had won for them. And so when the king then returns in victory, the people give him a hero's welcome. Why? Because he has delivered them. He has saved them from their enemies. 
And so a king is praised for what he has done for his people. Well, in Psalm 98, the Lord has defeated Israel's enemy. God has won the great victory. And therefore, when when God returns from the battle, the people are now called to greet him with song and with singing, to praise him for his great deliverance. They are to greet him as the great king. But you know, it's what the psalmist does. The psalmist expands this circle of praise to not only include the people of Israel, but to include all the earth. For the Lord God of Israel has revealed himself as the king of all the earth. Back in verse 2, the psalmist says, The Lord has made his salvation known to the nations and revealed his righteousness. That's also to the nations. So what he says is this. He says, when God delivers the people of Israel, God does oath for all the nations around Israel to see it. And so God is, or so the, the nations also remember, they saw God's great power at work there in Egypt. And the result is that the peoples of the world, they tremble before the God of Israel. Remember Rahab uh, telling the two spies in Jericho uh, that great fear of the God of Israel was over the whole land. They knew God's greatness. They knew His great power. They'd heard what He had done for His people Israel. And so God also has revealed His righteousness, the psalmist says. Which means that in His righteousness, God comes and He destroys the enemy. And God destroys them. Why? Because of their wickedness. And then in verse 3, the psalmist says, he says that all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. See what he says? He says the Lord God of Israel doesn't do His work in secret. He doesn't do it away from the view of all the nations of the world. No, He does it in view of everyone. He does it in view of the whole world. So that everyone in the world can see His greatness and they see His power everywhere. And therefore, when the Lord God returns in victory from the battle, what God reveals, beloved, is that He is indeed the King, that He is the ruler over the whole earth. That means that there is no power, there is no enemy who can stand up against the power of God Almighty. And when the peoples of the earth, they see God's mighty deeds, then they must also acknowledge that God is indeed the ruler of all the earth. You think here, for example, of King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar one night, he boasted about all his great achievements. He said, look what I built when he looked over his city, Babylon. Remember what God did? God came to Nebuchadnezzar that night. God humbled him. So that for the next while he had to live like a beast in the field with the other animals. And in the end, when the Lord God finally then also restored him again to his throne, the great king of Babylon, the greatest empire, the greatest empire that ever existed up to that particular point, that great king had to proclaim to all the people in his kingdom that Yahweh, the God of Israel, he is the sovereign Lord, he is the ruler of the whole earth. This God then also causes the nations to acknowledge Him to be the Sovereign Lord. Well, beloved, today we we sing these words from a a different perspective. 
Because these words now apply to the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we look to Him and we know that He is the one who won the great victory on the cross. And He overcame death when He was resurrected from the dead. And think about the work of the Lord Jesus. Remember, beloved, Christ's work was not done in secret. But it was done in front of the whole world so the whole world might see it. Right, the Lord Jesus was not put to death in a secret corner of Palestine where some murderers came one day and then they buried him in some forgotten corner of the land. No, he was condemned to death first by the rulers of Israel at a trial. Remember, it was a trial before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest court in the land of Israel. But he wasn't only condemned there in the highest court of Israel, uh, but he was also tried in the highest court in the whole world. That was, he was tried in the Roman court of law when he was brought before Pontius Pilate. And the result of all of this is that the work of the Lord Jesus is now known through the whole world so that there is no one who is, who is without any excuse and can, who can say to the Lord God one day, you know, Lord, I didn't know. No, Christ Jesus is being proclaimed everywhere. And then we also learn that after the Lord Jesus earned our salvation, that he ascended up into heaven in victory. And that's what you read in Revelation 5. For Revelation 5 reveals the Lamb of God as he enters into heaven after his ascension. And when he arrives in heaven, there he's greeted with praise as the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before him. And each one, we're told, had a harp, and they sang a new song. Notice here, the Lord Jesus is, is greeted as a king into heaven as he returns to heaven in victory. And so you cannot overlook the importance of this vision. Jesus as the Lamb is the only one who can come and who can take the scroll that was lying there in the hand of God and is able to open it. You know that particular scroll reveals the history of the world. And so the symbolism in that, picture, in, in that vision is that only the Lord Jesus, who has won the great victory by his sacrifice on the cross, is now in full control of the history of this world. It symbolizes to us, beloved, that the Lord Jesus, who has won the great victory on the cross, is now given authority and power to rule over the whole earth. That means, beloved, that the Lord Jesus today, He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. Well, that also explains why today our society is so hostile towards the church and especially hostile to the very idea that somehow the Lord Jesus is Lord of Lords and He is King of Kings, that He's the ruler of this earth. People do not want to acknowledge Him to be their Lord and to be their King. They do not want to submit their life to Him as the Almighty One. But beloved, the Lord Jesus gave His life on Golgotha for all of mankind to see it. And his great victory is a victory that is now being proclaimed over the whole earth. And whether mankind likes it or not, the Lord Jesus is the almighty ruler. 
That means that all mankind, therefore, also needs to praise Him. That's why the psalmist then also calls all peoples to praise God as the ruler of all the earth. And so today, beloved, all mankind is being called by the Lord to praise Jesus Christ as the great ruler of all the earth. And the day is coming when all mankind will indeed, they will have to acknowledge His greatness. The day will arrive when they will all bow down before Him and they will praise Him as the Almighty Ruler who comes from heaven. And therefore, beloved, this psalm is also for us a psalm of great joy. For we praise our Savior, for He is our Lord and He is my King. He is the one who came and delivered me from the misery of my sins. He is the one who overcame for me death and and gives to me eternal life. And therefore we may indeed, with the words of the psalmist, we may shout for joy to the earth. We may shout before the Lord, for He is indeed the sovereign ruler. He is the King. And then in the last part of the psalm, the circle of praise widens out even more. Here all creation is called on to praise the Lord. Notice verse 7 says, let the sea resound and everything in it. And so the sea here is, is called to praise God with its crashing waves, together with everything that lives in the sea. And then also the world. And in this context, you're speaking here about the dry land and all the creatures that live on the land are to resound with praise to God. And so the psalmist says, let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy. And so even the rivers and the mountains are to clap and they are to sing for joy to the Lord. And the psalmist then concludes in verse 9, let them sing before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in equity. And so you notice here all creation, that is the earth and the sea and the animals and the plants that are found in them, they are called to praise the Lord. Why? Because He is the one who comes to judge the earth. Now doesn't that sound rather strange? That all those things that we find in creation, that they would praise God because He is coming to judge the world. What does judgment have to do with their joy and with their praising God? For they're not human beings who have to answer to God for the things that they've done. Well, we need to go back to the beginning. You know that when, man, when God created mankind, He created us in His own image. And He gave us the, uh, the, the task to take care, to have dominion over all of His creation. So we were to be stewards of God's creation. And God gave to us, He gave us authority to take care of His creation And therefore, the actions of man and what man does also affected all of creation. And so when Adam and Eve, when they fell into sin, well, their sin had terrible consequences, not just for mankind, but had terrible consequences for all the rest of creation as well. And so you can say that that when mankind fell into sin, at that moment, the the music stopped for all of creation. Because of sin... God had to come into the world as the great warrior. 
in order that he might oppose the corruption of mankind. And of course, that has negative consequences for creation. In Isaiah chapter 24, the prophet Isaiah speaks about God entering into battle against his people. That is, his people who become disobedient to him. And when God enters into battle against his own people who have rebelled against them, what does God do? Well, in Isaiah 24, verse 1, Isaiah says, The Lord is going to lay waste the earth. He will devastate it, that is, the earth. In verse 4, Isaiah says, The earth dries up and it withers. And in verse 6, Isaiah says, A curse consumes the earth. And in verse 7, he says, the new wine dries up and the vine, it withers. And then listen to what happens to the music in verse 8 of Isaiah 24. The gaiety of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. The music stopped. That means for creation, there is no longer any joy. For the rebellion of mankind causes great pain. Also for creation. And then you can also understand why Psalm 98 here calls on all creation to sing before the Lord, before Yahweh, for He comes in judgment. Perhaps Paul has the best explanation for this text. When when you read also what he writes in in Romans chapter 8, verse 18 and following. Paul says in verse 20 that creation was subjected to frustration, not by his own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, that is, by the will of mankind. And then Paul says in Romans 8, verse 21, he says that the hope of creation is that it will be liberated, that it will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And in verse 23, Paul goes on and he writes, in verse 22, he writes this, he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The point that Paul makes is that creation is waiting for the judge to come. Why? Because when judgment comes, then creation will be liberated from the frustration that it feels today because of the results of the sin of mankind. And so the psalmist commands all of creation to resound with praise. Let the sea and everything in it, the earth and everything that lives in it, the rivers and the mountains, let them again make music. Why? Because the Lord God comes to judge the world. And then the words of Revelation 5, verse 13, also takes on some fuller meaning for us. Because in Revelation 5, 13, there John hears every creature, that a creature hears everything that is created by God, in heaven and on earth and on the sea, singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. You see, when Christ ascended into heaven in victory, in all creation, everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and in the sea, shouted with praise. They praise the Lord Jesus. Why? Because He's won the victory. And therefore, He is the one who, who now rules over the whole earth. 
That's why creation then also rejoices. Because he knows, because creation knows that one day he will come to judge the world. And when the great judge comes, then, beloved, then the music will never ever again be interrupted by the wickedness and by the corruption of mankind. Then the frustration and the groaning of creation will give way to joy and everlasting gladness. That's why this song must then also be heard on the lips of every believer today. Beloved, this psalm is as relevant and meaningful for us today as it was for God's people back then in the Old Testament. In fact, you can say that this song speaks to us in an even greater and in deeper and a more meaningful way. For beloved, when you sing this song, then what you're doing is you are praising the Lord Jesus. You're praising, first of all, for His past deeds of salvation that He accomplished for you there on the cross. And then you also praise Him, not only for His past deeds of salvation that He's worked for you, but then you also praise Him as the mighty King who now rules, who now guides your life today there from the right hand of God in heaven. And you praise Him as the one whom you know is going to come one day in judgment when He will remove the groaning and the frustrations and the, and the oppressions and difficulties of this life. It means, beloved, that we look forward to the day of His return from heaven because you know that on that day the music will never stop again. For we will then together with all of creation forever shout praise to the Lord God for his great work of salvation. Amen. Let us then also sing these words of the psalm in response to the word of our Lord. Psalm 98, the stanzas 1 and 2. <clears throat> 